Well, good morning. So good to see all of you here this morning, and maybe you're here for the very first time. If that's the case, welcome to Connect. Thanks for coming and checking us out. My name's Dave. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, I know we've got folks who are watching online as well, so good morning to you. Thank you for joining us here on this Sunday morning. So the year was 1992, and in Suffolk, England, a farmer by the name of Peter Watling was out in his fields one day, uh, and when he got back to his farmhouse, he realized he'd lost his hammer. It was his favorite hammer, and uh, he knew exactly which field he'd been in when he lost it, so he actually reached out to a friend of his, a guy by the name of Eric Laws, and Eric had a metal detector. So he said, Eric, would you come up to my farm? Would you come to this field, and would you help me find my missing hammer? So Eric Laws, he comes up there and he starts to walk around the fields and uh, some beeps starts to go off and he, uh, he took a little dig to see if this was the, indeed the hammer and to his surprise, it wasn't a hammer, it was some silver spoons, some gold jewelry, numerous gold and silver Roman coins. He just kept finding more and more stuff. So they alerted the authorities, archaeologists came in, and they spent the next several weeks um, excavating the entire field. And everything they found, they turned over to the British Museum. After an inquest, it was determined that this was, in fact, what they called a treasure trove. This was um, treasure that about 1,600 years earlier someone had clearly buried with the intention of going back at a later date to get it and never went back. And then 1,600 years later, Peter Watling and his friend Eric find it in this field. Now, British law states that all such treasure belongs to the crown. I know, it doesn't seem very fair, does it? I think that's probably why some of us are here today because there were some people who started a new colony because they didn't like the laws of this old uh, British uh, empire. But you'll be glad to know this morning that after the Treasure Trove Reviewing Committee, yes, there is a Treasure Trove Reviewing Committee, uh, after they looked at everything, they decided that the farmer and his friends should be rewarded with the value of the trove. $2.2 million. So this farmer and his buddy with the metal detector, they get to split $2.2 million. It's known as the Hoxney Hoard discovery. It's very famous. Historians are so thankful that it was found because um, they've learned so much about that time in England, 300, 400 AD, just based on some of the artifacts that they uncovered. And if you went to London today, you could go to the British Museum, you could see all of this on display at the British Museum. And do you know what's there on display alongside all of that treasure? Peter Watling's hammer. They found that as well. It's on display alongside everything else. Sadly, Peter Watling is now uh, engaged in a bitter lawsuit with the museum to try and get his hammer back. He's very upset that he never got to get his... I'm just kidding. <laughs> when they gave him a check for $2.2 million, I think he was like, keep the hammer. I'm good. <laughs> I can get a couple more hammers now. But imagine being that farmer. I wonder what his life was like. Maybe he was scraping to make ends meet, farming the fields every day, working hard, completely unaware 
of this, this treasure that lay just beneath the surface. We're starting a brand new series here this morning at Connect. The title of the series is When You Pray. And we're gonna learn in this series that some of us may actually be in the same boat as that farmer. I believe many of us are in possession of something that is very precious and valuable. Something that could change our lives and we don't even realize it's there. Something very old and yet so familiar that most of us have actually overlooked it. It's so old and familiar, we could probably recite much of it from memory without even thinking. So what am I talking about? What is this treasure that I'm referring to? We're gonna read um, a passage here from Scripture, and I think you're gonna recognize it. It's in Matthew chapter uh, six. It's the words of Jesus. He says in verse seven, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Pray like this. Now I'm gonna switch to a different version of the Bible for this next part. This is the King James Version. But the reason I'm switching is because I think you're gonna recognize the words in this translation a little bit more because I think this is the treasure that some of us didn't even realize was there. I'm gonna read it. If you know the words, read along. Some of you, I think, would be able to recite these words without even looking. But it says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I could hear you. Some of you were, were, were reciting those words. And I know that some of you, even though the words were on the screen, could have closed your eyes and continued to say the words of that prayer. I grew up in England and um, our school system's different over there. So part of our day at school was to have an assembly in the morning where we would sing a, a hymn. Uh, this is, you know, about... 20 years ago when I was a 10-year-old. Um, so um, we would sing a hymn and we would say a prayer. So every morning I would recite the Lord's Prayer. Thousands of times in my life I've said this prayer. I know it off by heart. Maybe you did as well. Maybe you grew up, um, your parents had you say it or the school you went to or the, the church you grew up in and you're familiar with the words of this prayer. But what if we don't know what we've got? What if this has become kind of boring and dated and mundane to us, but actually this prayer, the structure of this prayer, it could be life altering. So we're gonna break this prayer into six segments over the next six weeks. And we're gonna see how Jesus has laid out this incredible blueprint of how we can pray. The Lord's Prayer, many of us know it by that, by that name, the Lord's Prayer, it was a response by Jesus when he was looking around at the daily activity of the religious. He was seeing just the way they were praying and, and very often they were doing it really for the sake of other people to look on, to look good, to look religious in front of others. They didn't really understand the purpose and the power of prayer. So he addresses that. He addresses that in, in the way that he teaches this. Essentially, the Lord's Prayer is Jesus saying, if you want to see change both in yourself and the world around you, then let's start with prayer. 
We don't often think of prayer as being a a source of change, as being something revolutionary. But the theologian, Daryl Johnson, he said, to pray the Lord's Prayer is to participate in heaven's invasion of earth. There are many people to this day who still believe that prayer changes things. Last year, May the 4th, it was the National Day of Prayer. And I, I was doing some research and I found out that around that time they did a, uh, a survey of a group of Americans to get an idea of where Americans stood on the theme and the topic of prayer. There were many really interesting insights that came out of that, but one of them was pretty simple. It's that according to this survey, 61% of Americans say they pray. 61, that's almost two-thirds of Americans say they pray. Now, I don't believe that 61% of Americans, two-thirds of Americans, go to church every weekend. But it shows that even Americans who don't attend church still, at times, find themselves praying. And yet, despite this, I think if we're honest with ourselves, not just the one-third who didn't respond, but sometimes, some of us, when it comes to how to pray or what we should pray, many of us don't know the answer. You might remember about 10 or 11 years ago, a movie came out with Sandra Bullock and um, uh, Clooney, George Clooney, couldn't think of his name there for a second. George Clooney, Sandra Bullock, it was called Gravity. They were trapped in space and there's this one powerful scene when she's, she's alone in this spacecraft. She thinks she's gonna die and, and she talks about prayer. Let's watch it together. To know. Oh, I'm dying. I know we're all gonna die. Everybody knows that. But I'm gonna die today. Funny that. You know, to know. But the thing is, is that I'm still scared. Nobody will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you say a prayer for me? Or is it too late? Uh, I mean, I'd say one for myself, but I've never prayed in my life, so... Nobody ever taught me how. say a prayer for myself but no one ever taught me how to pray and I think we connect with that scene because for some of us that's true some of us grew up in a situation where where we want to believe in prayer and we have at times prayed but it's not like we've been taught how to pray what should we pray how should we pray and the truth is we probably don't think about it too much in our daily lives but then something happens a sickness or a financial challenge, maybe the death of a loved one. Maybe we find ourselves being stranded in space. And then we realize, I wish I knew more about prayer. Well, in this prayer that Jesus teaches us, that's what he's doing. He's laying out a plan for us, a blueprint structure saying, when you pray, here's how you should pray. 
It's part of a, um, a time in Jesus' life that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It was a, a period where he gathered one day on the mountainside and thousands of people came out to hear him speak. And he spent hours teaching on, on multiple different subjects. Many of the people who gathered to listen to Jesus that day weren't religious, but they'd heard about this wise man who was performing miracles and they wanted to hear him teach. And he taught about a multitude of subjects, but one of the things he taught about was prayer. And despite the fact that his audience weren't religious people, instead of saying, you should pray, or here's why it's important to pray, he just jumps straight and says, when you pray. He makes the assumption that people have a desire to pray. So he says, hey, when you pray, and then he proceeds to show what prayer could and should look like. Now, I don't believe that he laid out the structure of the, what, we, what we call the Lord's Prayer as something that we should now recite religiously, regularly, every day. There's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer. But I think it was less of a, here's what you should pray, and more of a, a structure, a blueprint of, here are some of the things that you should be praying for. You see, this morning, we're going to look at this prayer in detail. We're actually going to start on the first couple of, actually, the first line of this prayer. I think we're going to be surprised where Jesus starts. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So when Jesus is teaching these thousands of people on the hillside what it looks like to pray, he says, let's start here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm guessing that for many of you here this morning, that's not where your prayers start. For most of us, our prayers tend to start with, God, please help me with this situation. God, I need this or I need some help in this area of my life. God, please be with this person in this situation. Now, let me be clear here this morning. None of those are bad prayers to pray. Anytime you find yourself in conversation with Jesus, anytime you find yourself speaking to Father God, that's a great time. And I believe he loves to hear from us because I'm a parent and I know how much I love to hear from my kids. I know how much I love quality conversation. It's a rare gift, isn't it, for some of us as parents? I came across this uh, text this week. I found this online, but I bet every single one of us has got a text like this in their phone. Um, Mom, I should be there in 15. Are you all ready to get in the car? Yes. I'm arriving. Does Samuel have a soccer ball? No. We need that. Yes. Do you always answer every question, no matter how long or short, with a one-word answer? Maybe. <laughs> have you had any quality, in-depth conversations like that with your kids? When you're driving home from school and you get those one-word answers, how was school today? Fine. Anything exciting happened? No. <laughs> We're doing a um, group on Wednesday nights right now all around parenting. And a couple of weeks ago, it was talking about uh, the connection we, we aspire to have with our kids. And the, uh, it's a husband and wife. And the lady was talking about how when her kids were younger, all three of them were very different. So they had to look for the, the ways that they connected with their kids to have those quality conversations. And she said, my middle son, when he was in middle school, he loved it at nighttime before he went to bed if I would scratch his back. She said, I would sit on the edge of his bed and I would scratch his back. She said, and as I scratched his back, he would just open up and start talking. 
She says, well, I just kept on scratching. She goes, I scratched as much as I could because I loved those moments when he would talk to me and share about his day and, and talk about what's going on. And they're precious moments for us parents, aren't they? When we, we have that moment where suddenly uh, uh, we're engaging, we're, we're conver- having a conversation with our kids. I think that's what prayer's like. So I don't think there's any such thing as a bad prayer when we are communicating with our heavenly Father who loves us so much. But despite that, Jesus decides to say, let me help you with some structure here. Let me give you a guideline of some some good ways in which we can pray. And he starts out very differently than coming to God with a list of wants and wishes. He simply starts out, he says, when we pray, start this way. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's a couple of really cool things that we can take from just this one line of the prayer. The first is the way that Jesus addresses the creator of the universe. He says, our father. This wasn't just Jesus speaking to his dad. This is us. When we come to God, we don't need to to, to pray and, and, and address him as Lord of Lords or the most exalted or the most high, all of which he is. But Jesus says, no, when you you speak to God, it's like having a conversation with your dad. It's relational, it's personal. It's a child speaking to their father. They don't put on airs and graces, they just simply speak. Jesus says, when we speak, when we pray, we can come to the creator of the universe and we can address him as dad. I love this. It doesn't have to be this religious complex thing. I think some of us are put off the idea of prayer because we don't know the right words to use. We're afraid that we might not say, I I think God just wants us to talk to him. Like our dad. Following that, he teaches us to say, hallowed be thy name. We've prayed this prayer hundreds of times. And I wonder if any one of us knows really what hallowed means. We don't use it an awful lot in our conversation, do we? I went out this week on Valentine's Day and took my wife out to dinner. It was a lovely dinner. And and I was telling people afterwards, man, we went to this new restaurant, the food. It was hallowed. (laughs) I'm not even sure if that's the right context, but it sounds... (laughs) In the prayer, it says, hallowed be thy name. So so we think it must mean awesome, great. And it does, but it's, it's more than that. In fact... The version we read this morning is from the King James Version of the Bible. That's an older translation. That was a translation into English of the Bible about 400 years ago. So it's written in the 1600s. So here at Connect, we don't tend to use the King James Bible. Maybe you do, but uh, here at Connect, we use a more modern translation that was a, uh, a more modern translation of the original manuscripts in the Bible called the New Living Translation. So the King James, it uses that verse, hallowed be thy name. And I want us to read that this morning because that's the version of the prayer we're familiar with. But in the New Living Translation that we use here at Connects, listen to that same verse. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your name be kept holy. It's the exact same Greek words that Jesus used. But in this translation, instead of using the word hallowed, because we don't use that word anymore, It was translated into English to explain what it really means. It's saying, may your name be kept holy. That's what hallowed be thy name means. Our Father God, your name is holy. 
Holy means set apart, declared sacred. And hallowed be your name is reminding us that part of prayer is just to pause and worship God. Part of our prayer, before we jump into, I need this, would you fix this, would you, is just to pause and say, God, Father, Dad, you are incredible. I want you to know how much I love you today. I think to understand this first part of prayer, we really need to understand what it means to worship God. We hear that, that phrase a lot. This morning, we started out our service with what we often refer to as our time of worship or a time of praise and worship. When you arrived, you got your cup of coffee, you got your kids checked in, you came and sat down, and then the band came in and they led us in some songs. We call that our time of worship. Those songs are written by amazing musicians and, and they've put into words their, their feeling of God. Sometimes it's based on verses in the Bible and it means that we can come and we can spend some time every Sunday morning worshiping God as we're reading and singing those words in that song. We're saying, God, you are amazing. You are good. You've got good plans for me. Thank you, God, for the great plans you've got for my life. But it's not just the songs. Right now, as I'm speaking, and you're learning more about who God is, this is a part of our worship. We take communion here on a regular basis to remember the death of Jesus on the cross, and that's a part of worship. At the end of the service today, there'll be a group of people just down here at the front ready to pray with anyone who'd like some prayer. That's a part of worship. This Friday night, we have a worship night planned where we're gonna gather here and we're gonna sing and worship God. Jesus talks about worship uh, in John chapter four. He says, the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers, that's us, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And what Jesus is saying here is that, that when we worship, when we gather to, to sing his praises and say how amazing he is, it's coming from the, the heart and the head. Worship is emotional and intellectual. Our love for God causes us to want to worship and we just, the emotional part of us wants to say, God, you're amazing. But the intellectual part of us then starts to learn more about who God is and what he's done for us, the teachings of Jesus, and it inspires our emotions to want to worship even more. It's this beautiful connection, this union between head and heart, spirit and truth. But here's what we need to understand. Worship doesn't begin when we arrive here at church on a Sunday morning and then end when we leave Worship is so much more than that. A guy by the name of Paul who wrote a large part of the New Testament. Uh, it's his letters that we read that he wrote to these new churches after uh, Jesus and his disciples. He talks a lot about worship. Listen to what he says when he writes to a church in Rome. Romans 12 verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them, let your bodies be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. It's not just singing and praying, it's giving everything. God, my life is yours. That's how I worship. 
He writes to another church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That means that when we gather here this morning and sing, we are worshiping God. But shortly, when we go out to lunch together and we're eating and drinking, we're still worshiping God. Because we're saying, God, you are the center of my life. Everything I do, whether it's in church on a Sunday morning or in my neighborhood on a Wednesday night, everything, I recognize it as my opportunity to worship you. I think we need a paradigm shift in how we think about worship. Worship at its core is really all about what we value the most. I think this is the simplest definition I can give to worship. Worship is our response to what we value the most. Worship is our response to what we value the most. So if you believe that to be true this morning, then you've got a little homework assignment. You've got to go away now this week and you've got to think about that. And really, you've got to ask yourself a little bit of a self-examination question. And that question is, what do I value the most? If worship is truly about um, what we value the most, what do I value the most? Because when we ask ourselves this question, we begin to get an idea of what we really worship most in our lives. It could be our career, our education, money, people, family, a dream, an experience. It could be the stuff that we have. And none of these in and of themselves are bad. But when they're elevated above God in our lives, it becomes something that we're actually worshiping more than God. And that can be a dangerous place to be. Because a lot of these things at some point will let us down, may let us down. God will never, ever leave you or forsake you. So my challenge to you is when it comes to worship, when it comes to what you value the most, make sure that God is above everything else in your life. So how do we know? How do we know what we're worshiping? How do we know what we value the most? Well, I think one of the ways we could answer this is we could, we could look back and say, what did I speak about most this week? Because oftentimes, what is the most things that we speak about during a week? That's, that's kind of what's the most important thing in our life, what we value the most. Imagine if there was a way to go back and, and collect every single word and phrase you spoke over the last week and analyze it. It might give you a little insight into what is most important in your life. Have you ever seen those word clouds online? They'll, they'll take uh, a collection of words. It might be a speech or an essay or something. And then they'll, they'll take all those words and turn it into what's called a word cloud. And the more times the word is spoken, the bigger the word becomes in this word cloud. Here's an example of one. It's Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech. Very famous speech, but when you put all those words together in the word cloud, one word comes out very clearly as the, the biggest word in that speech, freedom. And we know the story of Martin Luther King. We know that that was the message he was trying to get across that day in his I Have a Dream speech, that there would come a time of freedom. Thanks to uh, the wonders of technology, I was actually able to create a word cloud for Casey, my wife, uh, based on everything she said over the last week. I uh, put it all together in a wonderful word cloud, and this is what I came up with. That's it. <laughs> that basically summarizes uh, a week in the life of Dave Jane. <laughs> now, I'm joking. That's not entirely true. She did say other things. Sometimes she said, I've lost my phone. Sometimes she said, have you seen my phone? Sometimes she said, will you go upstairs while I ping my phone to see if you can hear where it is? 
I do need to be clear here this morning before you wives get mad at me that I did ask my wife if I could share this story. She said, absolutely. But make sure you also share uh, this picture that I found online. She sent me this meme on marriage yesterday. It says, maturing in marriage is accepting that your wife can never find her phone, but she can tell you exactly what shelf in what room everything else is in the house. And it's so true. On a regular basis, I will go in search of something. I'll come down, I'll say, Case, I just was looking for that shirt. She goes, it's in the closet. I said, I was in the closet, it's not there. She goes, did you look? I said, I looked. She goes up, she goes in the closet, she comes out with the shirt. What kind of sorcery is this? That shirt was not in the closet when I went in. How did you do that? She said, I'll tell you the problem, you were looking like a man. That's why you couldn't find that shirt. And she is completely right. But what if we could take a word cloud of every word we'd spoken? I wonder what words and phrases would come to the top. I wonder what would be revealed of what we value the most in our lives, what we speak about the most. I mean, clearly the the answer we'd love to hear is that the word Jesus is is the largest word in our vocabulary throughout, throughout the week. But it's not just that. It's not how many times we say the words Jesus. I wonder if we were to look at the word cloud of our week, if it would reflect our values, our our belief in who God is. I wonder if we were to look back on the words we speak, would our words be loving and kind and gracious and merciful? Would they be the big words that show up over the week, words that line up with who God is? Or would we see words of gossip or anger or complaining and criticizing? I want what I speak about, I want what I value in my life to reflect who God is and how wonderful he is. Does what we value the most, what we speak about the most, does it reveal God to others? Because that's the outcome of worship. That's the outcome of what it means to worship. So I'm gonna send you away now this week with a bit of a challenge. Jesus opens this prayer with, hallowed be thy name. It's a great way for us to pray, to to take time in our prayers and say, God, you're amazing. But, But worship is so much more than a few words we say in a prayer, a song that we sing on a Sunday morning. It's our lifestyle. So here's my challenge for you this week. I have this mirror here as a visual aid. Uh, It's one of those weird mirrors that has like a normal mirror on the front and then one of those awful like magnifying mirrors on the back. I don't know why we need mirrors like that. There's never been a time that I've picked up this mirror and thought, I wanna see a really expanded close-up view of my face. It's just, and that's normally the one I see first. It's terrifying. So we'll look at the normal mirror, but, but I want you to imagine this mirror in the context of our lives. When it comes to worship, in a sense, we have mirrored souls. When it comes to worship, we have mirrored souls. I believe that we were designed to reflect the very thing that is of most importance in our life. When when we meet people, they get to see reflected what we value the most in our lives, what, what we worship in our lives, the most hallowed thing in our life is very often reflected back. All last week you were worshiping. The mirror of your life, it reflected the greatness of something. Was it God or was it something else? 
And as we think about that going into this week, I don't know about you, but I want people to see God reflected in me, who he is. Because here's the thing, when we begin to reflect our father, we become more like him. In a very real sense, we become like the thing or the one that we worship. We become like the thing or the one that we value the most. With this mirror in mind, listen to this verse that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth. He's talking to to brand new followers of Jesus. He says, all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. He's saying as we follow Jesus, we can become more and more like Him. And as we become more and more like Him, we reflect Him to others around us. Worship is reflecting the Lord's glory. I'm gonna close with this last story. I was at a conference uh, many years ago. Uh, There was a speaker there, his name was Louis Giglio. Brilliant speaker, great pastor from uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia. And I still to this day remember a story he told about this idea of, of how worship is reflecting God to those around us. He talked about the show Extreme Home Makeover. And if you remember that show, I'm not sure if it's still on, but it was real popular for a while. And um, if you've not seen the show, the concept was that this, this team from this TV show would come into town and there would be a house that needed help. It could be that maybe somebody in the house, something had changed, they were in a wheelchair now and renovations needed to take place so this person in the wheelchair could get around. Maybe it was a, a home where they were fostering lots of children, they were all sharing bedrooms. And there was, they always managed to find a family in a community who were really worthy of having some uh, renovations on their house. They would send that family away for a couple of weeks. They'd say, you guys go on a vacation, we're gonna renovate your house while you're gone. And they'd bring in local contractors and builders and plumbers and electricians and the the whole show, you got to see them, you know, dealing with all the issues and, you know, like any typical makeover show. And then it got to the very end of the show and they brought the family back. And if you remember, they, they parked this big bus in front of the house. And the family came and they stood there on the street and the bus was in the way and they couldn't see the house because of this bus and the whole community has gathered and all the people who are working on the project, they're all gathered and, and then all together in unison on the count of three, they would shout out, that's right, move that bus. You've seen the show. The bus would pull away and then do you know what you got to see? You didn't see the house you saw the face of the family. In that moment, the camera zoomed in on the face of the family. And what you got to see was the house, the new house in the face of the family. Just this wonder and excitement and awe. And it was always so moving because you got to see the change, the reaction in the family's faces. And this pastor, Louis Giglio, he said, you know, when we live our lives, people see Jesus in us. They may not get to see Jesus, but they'll get to see him in us. They get to see the wonder of who he is in our faces and our lives because when we live lives of worship, we reflect back who God is. But it will require us to think through this and say, okay, God, what do I value most in my life? 
Are you a part of my life or are you the, the, the center of my life? I want my friends, my family, my loved ones, my neighbors, my, my colleagues at work, I want them to see God reflected in me. Because that's what worship really is. That our Father, whose name is Hallowed, hallowed be your name. We worship you and others see him in us. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you so much, God, that um, you are a father who wants to have a conversation with his kids. The prayer doesn't have to be something out of our reach that we can simply talk to you. And while there is no prayer, no conversation that we can have with you that is the wrong conversation, Jesus, I wanna thank you that you did lay out some structure to teach us how to pray. You said, when you pray, pray this way. And the first thing you taught us was that we can speak to a dad, a relation, someone close to us, and that we can make that choice to worship him, to, to value him above everything else in our lives. I pray that this week that'll just echo in our ears as we look for ways to just continue to put you first, to worship you. In Jesus' name.